0: Welcome to Twill, the week in health law, the occasional podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. This episode was recorded on February 11th, 2020. I'm Nicholas Terry, a professor of law at Indiana University in Indianapolis. Today I welcome Dr. Julia Lynch, a professor of political science at the University of Pennsylvania. Her research focuses on the politics of inequality and social policy in the rich democracies, particularly the countries of Western Europe, with a particular interest in comparative health policy and the politics of health inequalities. Comparative political economy of Western Europe, Southern European politics, and the politics of aging. At Penn, she serves as the faculty director of the Penn in Washington program and co-directs the Penn Temple European Studies Colloquium. Dr. Lynch serves on the advisory board of the Italian Studies program, is a senior fellow of the Leonard Davis Institute of Health Economics, and edits socioeconomic review, a multidisciplinary journal focusing on analytical, political, and moral questions arising at the intersection of economy and society. Adding to her most impressive list of publications is Regimes of Inequality, the Political Economy of Health and Wealth, just published by Cambridge University Press. Welcome to the pod, Julia.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: So in the book, you explore inequalities in wealth and health. And one would have thought that if you threw your window open and peered down on the city of Philadelphia, just as I would look out of my window in Indianapolis, you'd probably find all the research you'd need into inequalities in wealth and health and let's not even get started on sending you on a trip to the deep south to study healthcare there but regimes of inequality the book starts in northeast england in geordieland home of the toon army and nooky brown ale elsewhere in the books there are stops in france and in finland uh, why there, not here and why those countries
1: well the simple answer to why there and not here uh, is that I'm trained as a Europeanist I'm trained as a scholar of European politics and so while I have an interest in um, what's happening in the United States and while my interest in Europe is very often motivated by trying to understand how we might be able to do different do things differently in the United States um, really my My default testing ground for hypotheses about what might be going on in the world uh, is always Europe. So that is the main explanation for why Europe, rather than a focus on inequalities in health in the United States. The other reason why I wanted to focus on Europe rather than the U.S. is that in the U.S., Health inequalities have been framed dominantly as inequalities in health care, And to a lesser extent, when people speak of inequalities in health status, it's very often framed in terms of racial disparities in health status. And I was really interested in thinking about uh, whether we could use the policymaking and the politics around policymaking in the area of socioeconomic inequalities in health status as a way of understanding the politics of inequality more broadly. And so Europe was the right place to do that.
0: Interesting. I I wonder whether it was also because of sort of the absence of left and center left parties in the US.
1: Well, that's certainly true. Although I would say that if you look at the last 15 years or so in the US and Europe, it's it's not clear that Europe, that many countries in Europe have all that much of a left left. And indeed, in the US, we've seen sort of the emergence or the reemergence of a progressive left for the first time in many, many decades. So I think in some senses, politically, the US and Europe are more similar than they've been in recent memory.
0: Now, this is a massive piece of work. I don't know how long it took you. And I know dense is not usually thought of as a compliment, but I mean it as such here The research and analysis Packed into this volume Is extraordinary A few strands That this non-political scientist Sort of picked up As I read the book First that Dealing with Inequalities Silo by silo So health Education Economic Is suboptimal, And we should concentrate more On their intertwining yes. Second Although we've been talking about Health inequalities And their inter. Section for some time. Social determinants of health, frequently referred to in this country, zip code health, and so on. We haven't done much about it rather than just talk about it. There's been a general failure of, I think, with respect to some of my friends involved in this, notwithstanding, there's been a general failure of health in all policies. We typically see the non-health sides of governments, both federal and state, not speaking to the health sides in efforts to coordinate and so on. And third, you argue that sort of there's a a rhetoric or rebranding of in inequalities as health inequality by politicians in Europe starting in the 1980s as a method of avoiding discussions about redistributive solutions to inequalities because they had started to favor sort of technocratic market economies. And so it was used to sort of deflect the inequality argument to an area where perhaps redistributive solutions would not have been so obvious. I close to the mark on any of that?
1: I was just thinking as you were speaking that you've given an excellent <laughs> summary of what is in fact a rather dense book. Um, I'm trying to do a lot of things in the book at the same time. And so there are multiple strands of argumentation and analysis in the book. I think for me, where I really began the book was wanting to understand why policymakers' efforts to reduce socioeconomic inequalities and health status had been so unsuccessful. Because it seemed to me that there was actually quite a lot of political will to try to take on the problem and to try to do something about it. And I was really struck by the difficulties that policymakers seem to face in doing that. And so that was my entry point into this set of questions, but the answers that I found as I researched this kind of led me to to multiple different layers or levels of conclusions about the politics of inequality more broadly.
0: Before we get into the weeds, I thought it might be useful to sort of define some terms or agree on some uses of terminology. So, for example, three terms that often appear in this space are health disparities, health inequalities, and health inequities. And frequently, health disparities and health inequalities are viewed as the same. They're differences in the presence of disease, health outcomes, access, etc., between population groups, whereas health inequities are differences in health that are considered unfair and unjust just, that are rooted in social injustices that make some population groups more vulnerable to poor health than other groups. Are those distinctions the ones that you use? Later in the book, you even draw a distinction between health inequalities and health care inequalities. And I just wanted to sort of try and focus in on exactly what we're talking about, and it may be more than one of those things.
1: So for me, the distinction between health inequalities and health care inequalities is a very important distinction. Um, Much of the analysis in the book is really premised on the idea that is, I think, very widely accepted among social epidemiologists that healthcare is a relatively minor contributor to health status and hence inequalities in access to health care are contributors to inequalities in health status, but they're not at all the only contributors. Um, so my focus is really on health status inequalities, and I look at inequalities in healthcare care um, only to the extent that they play a role in generating those inequalities in health status. As far as Health inequalities or health disparities versus health equity. I think this is a more, perhaps a more contentious position that I've taken in the book, which is that I don't distinguish. Um, I my reading of the largely European literature and policy, not only the research literature but also the policy um, documents and proposals that have come out around the area of health equity are really that um, people are using the term health in. Inequalities to be inclusive of what we would think of in the United States as health equity. So some people make a very strong distinction. If you use the term health disparities or health inequalities, you're really talking about something that doesn't have a moral judgment attached to it. You're saying that there's not really a problem here. Whereas if you use the term health inequity, that that's making a much stronger statement about sort of the moral valence of the issue. Uh, Whereas I take the position that, in the European discourse by the 1990s, when people talk about health inequalities, they are taking a moral stance. What they mean by health inequalities is inequalities in health status that are related to socioeconomic inequalities in society.
0: Yes, I see that. I think in a perfectly clean world, sort of the health inequalities and health disparities would be viewed as descriptive, while health inequities would be viewed more as normative. And I think as you further towards the end of the book, particularly in the last chapter, you use equity a lot more.
1: Yeah, I think the goal is equity in health <laughs> or or a goal is mm-hmm. equity in health. I mean, I think what I'm really talking about in the book more broadly is a drive towards more equitable societies. And one part of that is a more equitable distribution of health outcomes over the population um, but there are lots of other forms of equity too. I think as a, as a descriptive phenomenon, it doesn't actually matter all that much whether you call them uh, health inequalities versus health inequities. I agree with what you just said that, that, that using the term health inequity makes a very strong um, statement about your moral position. But I think that there are hundreds and hundreds of social epidemiologists, public health scholars, health services, economists, geographers all over Europe who are doing research on health inequalities that is driven by ultimately a normative concern for greater equity.
0: Excellent. That helps a lot. Now, one other piece just before we sort of get rolling into substance, a phrase that made me realize that I wasn't in Kansas anymore. You talk about, this is actually from chapter three, but um, I bring it up here. Quote, in the neoliberal paradigm that began to rise to dominance in the 1980s. Inequality is regarded as functional to economic growth. Only when capital accumulation is permitted can sufficient reinvestment to ensure a robust economy occur. Can you unpack that a little bit? I know it goes to sort of what I earlier terms of the third piece that I pulled out of the article but the for the for the non-political scientist can you can you help a little bit on that
1: I see a link in the way that people think about what works in the economy and the level of inequality that they believe is permissible and people who have a certain approach to the economy beginning sort of an approach that starts to take hold in Europe really start Starting in the early 1980s with Margaret Thatcher and then becoming much more widespread throughout the course of the 1990s. This approach is a neoliberal approach in the sense that it prioritizes the uh, smooth functioning of the market and, in particular, the ability of national governments to compete in open international markets, open both for trade and for financial transactions. Within this paradigm, a certain amount of inequality is generally seen as beneficial for economic growth. And there are a couple of reasons for that. Uh, One is that low wages are important if you want to sell your goods abroad in free and and open trade regimes. And so having a greater level of permissible inequality in society um, essentially means being able to pay people lower wages. The view among neoliberal economists and policymakers that inequality is functional is through the idea that tax of very high incomes is generally going to be a bad idea, that that's going to tend to slow growth. And in part, that is an older set of ideas about entrepreneurs and capitalists needing to be allowed to reinvest their earnings in productive capacity. But it's also increasingly starting in the 1990s about letting finance be the energy of growth in at least some of the advanced capitalist economies. So in short, <laughs> to make long story short, there seems to be or there is an elective affinity between neoliberalism as a set of ideas about how to run the economy and a greater permissiveness towards inequality. Those two things go hand in hand.
0: And to, to put a face on the wanted posters, are we talking in the UK about Blairism more than sort of post-Thatcherism or, or what and how would you describe parallels or or contrasts in the other countries you looked at?
1: So we might think as sort of the the most obvious um, incarnations of neoliberalism as people like Margaret Thatcher or Ronald Reagan in the United States. um, I think one thing that we tend to forget is that as time went by, the center left, not only in the UK and in the US, but also in many other countries in Europe, um, began increasingly to accept the the economic ideas and the economic precepts that were first put forth under what were at the time much more radical governments of, of Thatcher and Reagan. So these ideas kind of went mainstream. And by the middle of the 1990s, most center-left politicians and policymakers in Europe had accepted the idea that the key to prosperous and thriving society was that a country ought to be able to compete in international markets. Um, and ought to be able to attract financing from international financial markets. And a condition of doing that was showing a certain amount of fiscal probity, not spending too much, not racking up deficits, not redistributing too much. So this set of ideas went from being a very radical set of ideas in the early 1980s to being very, very mainstream by the middle of the 1990s.
0: And I guess if we were to look at our country at that point, uh, Bill Clinton uh, and his approach was probably largely responsible for the Republican Party's hatred of him, was they felt that he was actually taking on some of their policies. And then, of course, we also saw the other side of that with regard to his welfare reforms and so on.
1: Exactly. If you look at politicians like Bill Clinton or like Tony Blair, Gerhard Schroeder in Germany, there was very consciously and explicitly a move to the center. It was a third way between social democracy, which used to be sort of the hallmark of the center left, and what the liberal with a capital L, you know, the sort of pro-market right was espousing. These politicians aimed very clearly and explicitly to close the gap between the center left and the center right by moving to the right.
0: As we sort of leave chapter one, you talk about the work of... Thomas Piketty as a sort of a critique, I guess, of that uh, particular uh, neoliberal paradigm.
1: Yes. I mean, Piketty in some ways is a useful foil for me, not because I fundamentally disagree with him, but because of the way that he's been read within, particularly in political science, his understanding of what generates inequality has been read as a very economics-focused argument. Essentially, he says that there are fundamental economic laws that tend to Toward the overaccumulation of capital in the hands of people who already have it, and the under-accumulation of capital in the hands of people who don't have so much of it. And I, I think the reading of Piketty that has been very common is that what we should take away from that is that the driver of inequality, the reason that inequality has been allowed to rise over the course of 30 years with essentially zero correction, is fundamentally an economic problem. And I make the argument in the book that this is fundamentally a political problem, not an economic problem. And I think Piketty ultimately agrees with me. He has argued quite strongly that if we want to tame the economic forces that push toward greater inequality, we can. And that in fact, we ought to. (laughs) And so really the question that I'm trying to answer in the book is why haven't
0: we? By chapter two, you're talking about regimes of inequality and the causal relationships between economic inequality and health inequality. Again, can you can you pump a little more air into that for me?
1: In some senses, the reason that I talk about regimes is a sort of inside baseball, very nerdy nod to a body of literature in comparative political economy that tries to understand really what is the nature of political economic compromises that help societies to run. And there's a view that these political and economic compromises are tightly coupled, they're intertwined with one another. And then it's very hard to make changes in one area of the political economy without also affecting another area. And so one of the things that I'm doing in the book is trying to to flesh that out and to understand how the welfare regimes that were set up in the early post-war period continue to influence through their regime-iness, through their tightly coupled nature, the economic outcomes in terms of inequality that we see You know, into the new century. But at another level, the relationship between income inequality and health inequality is really a question for public health and social epidemiology. There has, as I'm sure many of your listeners will be aware, there has been a very extensive controversy in the public health literature about whether socioeconomic inequality itself, the fact of inequality, has a causal relationship with health inequalities. So many studies have been designed to try to address this problem of teasing out whether there's a causal relationship there or whether the two are merely correlated with one another. And what I see as an outsider to this discipline is that many of the interventions are actually rooted in in quite deep-seated political and disciplinary differences. <laughs> I take the position in the book that most policymakers who are experts in the area of health inequality and who are at the level of their daily lives tasked with the challenge of reducing health inequalities, most of them understand economic inequality to be a causal factor in generating health inequalities. So whether or not there is in fact a causal relationship, (laughs) I don't know. But these experts and policymakers very often, think that there is one. And I think that's an important starting point
0: for the discussion. One of the points you make is um, about the choices that these neoliberal forces made was that when it came to health Inequities or inequalities, there was going to be leveling up, not redistribution. Can you correct me on that if I'm wrong, and/or then maybe talk a little bit about illustrations of that that you could give from your work looking at England, France, Finland, or other places.
1: Certainly, when it comes to health inequalities, it's it's difficult to redistribute health, and in fact, this is one of the reasons that politicians like talk about health inequalities is that it's health is not seen as something that can be redistributed. So if you're a politician who's kind of scared of talking about redistribution, talking about health inequality is a great idea because it means that you don't have to talk about something that can be redistributed. So the implication of that is when we talk about health inequalities, we are almost always talking about leveling up. We're talking about improving the health of groups in society that have worse health at a faster rate Than the health of higher income people, for example, is improving. The problem comes when thinking about the causal relationship between economic inequality and health status. We know that lower socioeconomic status causes worse health, and it causes it not only among the very poorest, but it causes it across an entire social gradient, such that middle-class people are uniformly in worse health than people who are just above them on the on the socioeconomic ladder. What that means is that if you want to level up, if you want to reduce health inequalities, you really have to do more than simply reduce poverty. You really have to reduce socioeconomic inequality in order to level up in health. So there's a bit of an asymmetry when we talk about reducing health inequalities. We're talking at the most surface level in terms of the outcomes, in terms of leveling up. But in terms of the drivers, we're very often talking about redistribution.
0: Is there a a relationship here to what we sometimes see in health policy in this country of the medicalization of poverty? So, for example, we don't seem to be able to do very much with regard to poverty, given our politics. So we'll tend to use Medicaid to medicalize aspects of poverty poverty, such as a lack of housing and things like that. Is is that anywhere close to where you are?
1: Yes, I think that's a really, that's a great analogy. I I said earlier that the main question that I set out to answer when I began researching this book was why policymakers' efforts to reduce socioeconomic inequalities and health status had been so markedly unsuccessful. And the main answer that I came up with for that question was, in fact, that by medicalizing inequality, they turned it into a problem that was much harder to solve. So politicians have used the issue of health inequalities as a way to avoid talking about both the problems and the solutions to deeper underlying social inequalities, which they fear are simply too politically controversial. But medicalizing inequality, which means reframing inequality from being an issue of the maldistribution of power and resources in society to being a problem that can actually be solved through policy actions that work on the social determinants of health. This medicalization of inequality, as I said, makes it a much harder problem to solve. And the reason for that is that the policy solutions that in the 1990s and 2000s were adopted in Europe and that are now... being adopted in the United States for the problem of health inequalities, sort of a health in all policies kind of approach. This policy solution requires a level of policy coordination across sectors of government and across levels of government that is virtually impossible to achieve, even for the strongest, most functional bureaucracies. And meanwhile, it sets to one side and sort of ignores policy levers that are maybe politically less controversial, but that are much easier to use, like taxation, redistribution, regulation of markets, um, public spending, policy levers that were used in the past to control these underlying inequalities, and that could still be used today to control them in order to, reduce the inequalities in health that are caused by these underlying inequalities. So I think the medicalization of inequality is something that politicians did strategically, but it had unintended consequences.
0: Do you think that there is a sort of a cognitive dissonance or just (laughs) downright lie-telling amongst our politicians and our policymakers on uh, things like this? I mean, I'm thinking, again, a US example, forgive me, but... um, Alex Azar, the Secretary of uh, State for, uh, for Health in, in this country, who's a super smart guy, um, gave a great speech about a year and a half ago, I think now. Um, on how hey, it's the social determinant, stupid, right? That's the real battle we have here. That's yeah. that's what we need to tackle. That we're not tackling in trying to get out of our um, healthcare problems. And you can see the um, when you look at sort of the the causes of of health problems, the clinical piece is relatively small compared to many of the other inequalities that you talk about, albeit not in the U.S. Yet at the same time as they is saying that. He is running an agency that is doing everything it can to destroy Medicaid and also the Obama exchange markets that try and help folks who are slightly above the Medicaid FPL. Is this dissonance? Is it because different parts of these regimes, in the, in the political sense, this time, are dealing with it, or or what?
1: That's a great question. I think I began this research suspicious that this was not simply a question of cognitive dissonance or unawareness, but that in fact there was something quite intentional about taking away with one hand and giving with the other. I came to the conclusion after I did my research that, that by and large, that wasn't the case. Um, I think it's a more complicated story. So, I think that it is very often the case, and I saw precisely the phenomenon that you just described occurring in the U.S., a very analogous situation develop in France over the period of the sort of 2010s, where politicians who had been aware for years that there was a way of thinking about health and about what produced health equity that involved acting on the social determinants of health really took no meaningful action on it until they got to the point where they needed to cut healthcare budgets. And at that point, they very strategically adopted the issue of social determinants of health and the social determinants of health framing of the problem of inequality as a way to be able to claim to be in favor of of equity, while at the same time not making promises that they couldn't keep about spending more money in healthcare. So I think there's definitely definitely an element of that 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 goes on certainly in some cases Um, And I think the French example is, is a very good example of that. On the other hand, I think there are also elements at play here. One is that starting in the 1990s, there was a new, it went along with the center left's increasing centrism and third wayism. There was a new emphasis on technocratic solutions to problems, rather than trying to solve the problem of inequality through sort of economic levers like fiscal policy or monetary policy or regulation, there was a a changed approach. And that was that we ought to work on some of these fundamental social problems by investing in human capital, by activating people, by helping them to participate in the labor market. Uh, by improving their health, which is a form of of human capital. And so I think the sort of pivot to talking about health inequalities and from there to talking about social determinants of health was a part of a broader shift in understanding among policymakers about what would work. And this was in some senses a response to the policy failures or the perceived policy failures of the 1970s. So people were looking for new solutions. And I think there was a certain element of, of true belief that this was a better way to try to solve the problem.
0: So time is oppressing, but there were uh, a couple of points from the, the final chapter that I wanted to get you to, to expand on a little bit. The first is a, a splendid or the rather depressing phrase of resilient inequality. And then you also talk about taboos. And I I wonder if you could talk about those two points.
1: Yes. So let me talk about taboos first. So taboo is a very odd word for a political scientist to use. We don't normally speak uh, in <laughs> in that terminology. But it's a, it was a word that came up again and again in my interviews And it came up among politicians and policymakers who were telling me about things that they felt that they just couldn't do or say in politics, that there were certain things that were too dangerous for them to propose or to even discuss in some cases. Redistribution was the taboo that came to the fore in my discussions with policymakers in the UK and politicians. Uh, public spending, sort of state spending, was the taboo in France. And strong regulation of internal markets was a taboo in Finland. These were things that politicians believed that it would be politically too dangerous to talk about. And they were the things that motivated the pivot to reframe inequality as a matter Mm -hmm. of health, to medicalize inequality. The large, probably the largest question that I tried to answer in the book is why is it that inequality has risen so inexorably across all of the advanced industrialized countries starting earlier in some cases in the 1970s in the US for example a little later in other cases in the early 1990s in Scandinavia but there has been an inexorable rise of inequality despite the fact that political elites and economic elites in many cases believe that inequality has reached dangerous levels and it is is really, truly puzzling to me. We accept this as the new normal. Rising inequality has become politically accepted as normal. And I really didn't understand why that was and how that came to happen. And so, this book is about telling the story of how that came to happen.
0: I knew this wasn't going to end well. The new normal. Oh, dear. (laughs) I loved the book. I learned a ton, but I have one overarching criticism. Let's hear it. The cover. I understand that unequal slices of pie or cake makes for a great visual, but man, that's one good-looking ghetto. I felt hungry every, every time I picked up the book. It's the first book that I've actually put pounds on reading.
1: You are not the first person to make <laughs> that complaint.
0: Oh, my. And that was the week in health law. You can find Professor Lynch on Twitter. She is at Julia F. Lynch. Julia, that was a real treat. Thanks so much for coming on the show.
1: Thanks very much. I really enjoyed it.
0: Show notes are at tool.com. I am at Nicholas Terry on Twitter. Thank you for joining me and have a legally interesting but healthy week.